The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. We welcome as our guest today, Father Hugh Somerville Knapman, OSB. He has a thought-provoking essay in the Catholic Herald, which deserves a wide audience and greater discussion. Father Hugh Somerville Knapman, OSB, is a monk of Dowie Abbey in England. He is the author of Ecumenism of Blood, Heavenly Hope for Earthly Communion, published in 2018. He also has a blog, Dominus Mihi Adutor, God is My Help. And uh, you should check that out. It's really uh, very thoughtful. Father has an essay in this week's number of the Catholic Herald at the time that I'm talking. It's the first week of April in 2019. And uh, the essay has the date of 4 April 2019. Just this week, we passed the 50th anniversary of Paul VI's promulgation of the Apostolic Constitution, Missale Romanum, by which he imposed the Novus Ordo Missae on the Latin Church. The new Missal was then to be used uh, from the first Sunday of Advent onward in 1969, but we call this Missal the 1970 Missale Romanum for the sake of ease. Uh, I did uh, a few podcasts on Paul VI's general audiences just before the implementation of that missile. Father Somerville Knapman has opened the way in his essay for an assessment of the last 50 years, five whole decades, with a view to how the Novus Ordo came to be in the first place. Now, your first reaction to this is going to be this is dense and devastating. In 1,500 words, Father does an autopsy of the genesis of the Novus Ordo, exposing the machinations of Father Bunini and the entirely artificial way in which the new order was cobbled up by fancy and by fiat. What his article does is press home the shocking speed at which it all happened from the mandates of the Council Fathers to final product. It's astonishing. The fact is that the Council Fathers mandated very few things. The concilium of experts that were put together to implement the mandates of the Council Fathers under Bunini and uh, Cardinal Ercaro went way beyond the things that the Council Fathers actually mandated. And in the name of the Council, they created a new rite of Mass out of uh, scraps, in a way. They, it's like they, they, cut it, you know, they did cutting and pasting and then moving things around and so forth. Or uh, to use another image, perhaps uh, like a quilt might be put together in haste on a Saturday morning at a quilting bee. But, Father, but Father, some of you defenders of the Novus Ordo are probably mewling by now. Benedict XVI said that the Novus Ordo is not a different rite, but rather it's a different form of the one and the same Roman rite, but you can't see that because you hate Vatican II. Well, I don't hate Vatican II. I respect it enough not to lie about it. Also, what Benedict XVI did in Summorum Pontificum was a juridical solution 
to the great questions of the relationship of the two forms, what we call the two forms. It wasn't a historical or a theological solution, or really a liturgical solution. It was juridical. He didn't solve the debate about the continuity of the forms. He said that a priest who has faculties to say Mass can use either book, the 1962 book or the 1970 book. That's it. That's a juridical solution. It doesn't solve anything else. With that, let's hear this swift but detailed essay about the genesis of the Novus Ordo. Here is The Strange Birth of the Novus Ordo by Father Hugh Somerville Knappman, dated for April 2019 in the Catholic Herald. After several decades of liturgy wars, few are unaware of the turbulent history of the post-conciliar liturgy since the new order of Mass, Novus Ordo Mise, was promulgated 50 years ago, on April 3, 1969, by Pope Paul VI with his apostolic constitution Missale Romanum. The Novus Ordo was produced in a mere five dizzying years by a committee of bishops guided by an assemblage of experts. The process itself was a novelty, starkly contrasting with the gradual and organic growth, over more than 1,500 years, of the liturgy it replaced. The Vatican Council's constitution on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, was promulgated by Paul VI on December 4, 1963. Little time was lost in its implementation. With the motu proprio Sacram Liturgiam of January 25, 1964, Pope Paul VI directed a committee to revise all the liturgical rites, to be called the Concilium ad Exequendam Constitutionem de Sacra Liturgia, or the Concilium, the committee for carrying out the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. The committee's first president was Cardinal Giacomo Lercaro of Bologna, and its secretary was the controversial Father Annibale Bunini. The Concilium is arguably the most ambitious but ill-starred committee in the Church's history. Its membership was large and international in spread. Its initial 42 members, later 51, were mostly bishops. Assisting them were more than 200 official consultors and unofficial advisors. Despite the use of working groups, plenary sessions of the Concilium were unwieldy and procedurally flawed. The assessment of the Concilium's first plenary meeting in the diary of Ferdinando Antonelli, OFM, a full member, later a cardinal, was not flattering. Merely an assembly of people, many of them incompetent, and others well advanced on the road to novelty. The discussions are extremely hurried, and voting is chaotic. Of 42 members yesterday evening, we were 13, not even a third of the members. By the eighth meeting in April 1967, he found attendance improved, if far from full, though serious procedural problems remained, especially voting by show of hands. But nobody counts who has raised a hand and who has not. It is disgraceful. Even at this late stage, no minutes were being recorded. The real force in the Concilium was Father Bunini. Antonelli observed in 1967 that, Father Bunini has only one interest, press ahead and finish. The French oratorian Louis Bouillet, 
a leading light of the preconciliar liturgical movement and consultor to the concilium, recalls Bunini in his memoirs as a mealy-mouthed scoundrel, a man as bereft of culture as he was of honesty, whose maneuvers Cardinal Lercaro was utterly incapable of resisting. When Bunini faced opposition, which was not only massive, but one might say close to unanimous, he would carry the day by declaring that the Pope wills it. From Paul VI himself, Bouillet would learn that Bunini pressed the Pope to approve the removal of the cursing psalms by asserting a unanimous but non-existent recommendation from the Concilium. By means of incremental changes, the liturgy was recrafted by the Concilium to the point of reconstruction. The instruction Inter Ecumenici, dated September 26, 1964, made several changes to the Mass, such as removing the last gospel, introducing bidding prayers, and a communally recited paternoster, and allowing use of the vernacular save for the preface and the canon. In November 1964, the Eucharistic fast was reduced to one hour. In March 1965, conditional permission was given for concelebration and communion under both kinds on a limited basis. A month later, the preface was permitted to be said in the vernacular. In April 1967, an instruction on sacred music allowed for the use of new music and instruments other than the organ at Mass. The next month, the instruction Tres Abhinganos mandated the removal of most of the celebrant's sacred gestures at the altar and allowed for the canon itself to be said in the vernacular and, consequently, allowed. Meanwhile, out of the public eye, the concilium had devised, in parallel to the public reforms, a new form of mass by May 1966. At the October 1967 Synod of Bishops in Rome, this new form, dubbed the Missa Normativa, debuted before the Synod Fathers, celebrated by Father Bugnini. It revealed simplified rubrics, a longer liturgy of the Word, and a substantially new offertory. And the ancient Roman canon was replaced by what is today's Third Eucharistic Prayer. The bishop's reaction was hardly enthusiastic. Only 71 Synod Fathers gave unqualified approval, while 62 wanted changes, 43 rejected it outright, and 4 abstained. Cardinal John Heenan of Westminster was politely scathing, telling the Synod that few of the consultors could ever have been parish priests, and that the Missa Normativa would reduce parish congregations to mostly women and children. Antonelli's judgment was pithy, the Synod of Bishops was not a success for the Concilium. Bunini and the Concilium pressed on undeterred, though Cardinal Lacaro was moved into retirement. Three closed-door celebrations of the new form, with some tweaks, were made in the presence of Paul VI. By May 1968, three new Eucharistic prayers had been approved. After more tweaks and deliberations, Paul VI gave his written approval to the Novus Ordo on November 6, 1968. The Apostolic Constitution Missale Romanum, which delivered the Novus Ordo to the Church, was signed off on April 3, 1969, and the Novus Ordo published on May 2, to prepare for the implementation throughout the Church on November 30th. 
The Novus Ordo was prefaced by a general introduction, the inadequacies of which prompted a group of theologians already worried by the Novus Ordo to compose a short critical study of the new order of Mass. Before it could be sent to Paul VI, it was leaked to the press. It opened with a covering letter signed by two once-powerful cardinals, Ottaviani and Bacci, and has become known since, inaccurately, as the Ottaviani Intervention. It was a searching critique of the theological implications of the Novus Ordo, which its authors held to be detrimental to faith and a significant departure from the established understanding of the Mass. At the heart of their concerns was the definition of the Mass in the general instruction, which described it as a supper, but not a sacrifice. Their critique led to a corrected general instruction being published in the 1970 edition of the Missal. Otherwise, the Reform horse had bolted. In England, the Novus Ordo, particularly the consequent suppression of the hitherto traditional rite of Mass, provoked alarm within and without the Church. A group of more than 50 eminent writers, thinkers, and artists, including two Anglican bishops, made an appeal to the Pope in 1971. It pleaded for the survival of the traditional rite of the Mass, which belongs to universal culture as well as to the Church. It has been named in honor of the signatary whose name apparently most struck Paul VI, Agatha Christie. The resulting papal indult permitting limited use of the traditional rite of Mass in England and Wales only has been known ever since as the Agatha Christie indult. Yet many regarded it as a positive change, Perhaps most were neither alarmed nor overjoyed, but acquiesced to the changes out of habitual obedience to the Church. However, with the Novus Ordo now fifty years old, it seems timely to reassess the reform, not from a progressive or conservative viewpoint, but by the measure of the Vatican Council itself. In a 2016 conference paper, Professor Stephen Bullivant contended that the liturgical reforms mandated by the Council, with their emphasis on active participation, were manifestly motivated and justified by neo-evangelistic thinking and concerns, though new evangelization was yet to be coined. Despite its ancient Christian heritage, Europe was justly seen to be in as much need of evangelization as the non-Christian cultures of Africa and Asia. Thus, the Council's provision for more radical adaptation of the liturgy in mission territories informed liturgical reform in traditionally Christian cultures now self-identifying as mission territories, vernacular language and music being a case in point. The Council's stated aim in reforming the liturgy was to impart an ever-increasing vigor to the Christian life of the faithful, while seeking to strengthen whatever can help to call the whole of mankind into the household of the Church. One can assert the Reform's success in the latter aim when looking today at the classic mission territories of Africa and Asia. Success in the former aim when looking at the established Christian cultures of Europe and the Americas is harder to claim. A mass reformed specifically to address the modern situation, or rather that of the 1960s, has been met with a drastic and largely consistent decline in mass attendance. Bullivant identifies the Council's own measure of judgment for liturgical reforms, that they be 
pastorally efficacious to the fullest degree. Authentic pastoral efficacy is hard to concede given the decline in attendance at the Reformed liturgy and the resurgence of the traditional liturgy, especially among the young. In light of this, Bolivant argues that the logic of the Council's decrees demands that the Reformed liturgy be revisited. Dare we do so? Dare we not do so? That was The Strange Birth of the Novus Ordo by Father Hugh Somerville Knappman of Dowie Abbey in Berkshire in England uh, under the date of 4 April 2019. The Catholic Herald really provides uh, some wonderful weekly grist for the mental mill. Now this is certainly going to provoke a lot of people. Frankly, however, sober assessments are more useful and more charitable in the long run than fluffy and unrealistic rewritings of history. Uh, something that really hit me in this essay is the speed at which all of this was done. Of course, they had to move with blitzkrieg speed, didn't they? Otherwise, people wouldn't have stood for it. Uh, speaking of continuity, I was just chatting uh, with the great Father Tim Finnegan. He made a an interesting observation about speed. When you're young, time seems to pass more slowly. Uh, many people were young when all these changes were taking place. And today, uh, they may not recall uh, how you know what it was like, how fast everything happened. But with the perspective of age, that wouldn't be the case. As a result, some people who are seasoned Catholics have a wholly different view of the speed at all those liturgical changes than younger than uh, younger Catholics. Ah, those halcyon days, those heady days of Vatican II. Um, a lot of people are still kind of high from them. In these United States, uh, those were days of protests and challenging authority and the sexual revolution was going on and everything was wrapped up with Vatican II and the new springtime that we were being promised. And uh, it's really no wonder that some older people are triggered if they see a cassock or someone suggests that the Kyrie should be in Latin. Now, uh, for my part, I have to say that the I was brought into the church, or attracted to the church, in the first place by a properly implemented and traditionally celebrated Novus Ordo at the parish where I was, uh, a former pastor had been a peritus at the council for all the sessions. He knew really what was being implemented and what wasn't being implemented. He knew, for example, that it was a lie that altars had to be taken out or turned around or that statues had to be taken out of churches or that this had to be done, that or that you couldn't use Latin. He knew that that was all wrong. And so he implemented the, the changes in a very uh, intelligent way, in a very faithful way, according to what the council had been talking about. Um, so I was really brought in through a very traditional, very Roman style of the Novus Ordo. That's what got my attention in the first place. However, I very quickly figured out that the Novus Ordo was the more acceptable and the more effective, the more it was celebrated according to the Roman liturgical tradition. And so quickly I started to ask myself, if that's the case, why not just use the traditional forms? 
And so I started to learn about the traditional forms, which was extremely difficult in those days. There just weren't that many resources. There were hardly any place where it was going on. This was before, uh, for example, the discussions of the wider use of the of the traditional forms began in Rome in 1984, and then in 1986, and you know before uh, Ecclesia Day was implemented in 1988. In any event, I did my best to try to learn what was going on, and through various circumstances, I eventually wound up, as if by accident, but certainly by the finger of God, to be much involved in these matters even at the level of working in the office of the Roman Curia that dealt with these things. But that's, a, that's another story. For, so for my part, anyway, I can respect the Novus Ordo for what it is and uh, understand it for what it isn't and avoid getting really worked up about it. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, in Benedict XVI's Modu proprio sumorum pontificum, which I very frequently refer to as the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, for the older, extraordinary form of the Roman Rite, we have a mighty gift and a tool to help us revitalize our Catholic worship, which is absolutely necessary. We have to reconnect with our tradition. We have to reconnect and revitalize our identity as worshiping Catholics. Uh, sumorum pontificum was certainly one of the most important achievements, probably the most important achievement of Benedict XVI's pontificate. And it's being uh, implemented well. Just in the, in the last 10 years or so, I was in Rome for the 10th anniversary of Sumerum Pontificum, and we heard the fantastic statistics, at least in these United States, the, um, the number of masses from 2007 to 2017, or places where you could find the older form of mass, uh, grew from about you know 50 to well over 500, so that is you know that's terrific. Um, anyway, no renewal of Holy Church, no renewal or revitalization of our identity as Catholics, and therefore our ability to contribute and to shape the world around us as Catholics, is going to be possible without a renewal and a revitalization of our liturgical worship. Everything starts there. Everything has to go back there. When I hear bishops and other, you know, people talking heads or so-called experts walking about, um, you know, what we need to do to make a vital parish or, you know, whatever. They almost never talk about liturgy, but that's where everything starts and everything comes back to. The Eucharist is the source and summit of who we are, and that means the celebration of the Eucharist is the source and summit of who we are. And if we change the way that we celebrate that, we're going to change everything about us, what we believe and how we live. So, in any event, the older form of Holy Mass of the Roman Rite, the Usus Antiquior, has to be recovered. And the recovery of the older form is going to exert, and is exerting now, a gravitational pull, as I call it, on the way that the Novus Ordo is celebrated. Uh, time and time and time again, we hear that when priests learn or relearn the older form, they change the way that they say the newer form. And it has a deepening of their ars celebrandi, everything about their liturgical comportment. And that, in turn, is going to have a knock-on effect in their congregations. You know, some will be triggered, right? But others will be moved to a new consideration of who they are as Catholics participating in the sacred liturgical rites. Now, some of you out there 
with a different kind of tone, though. But father, but father are surely thinking, you know, if this is really your position, why not just get rid of the Novus Ordo? Why do you even think about it being maintained or improved? Shouldn't we just scrap it? Well, okay, you can argue for that. I think it's unrealistic. Um, you know, the Novus Ordo isn't going, going away uh, anytime soon. Um, many, many of the problems of our Catholic faith uh, and our Catholic identity, rather, that we're dealing with today stem from the brutal imposition of undesired and unexplained, unexplained changes back in the 1960s. We have to avoid brutal impositions, sudden impositions. We have to learn from our mistakes. Uh, also, the powers that be, uh, I think, are most really mostly liberal, and they are still high on the fumes of those halcyon days, and they're not going to let it happen. So we have to be patient. We have to be prudent. Uh, both patience and prudence are obligatory. And frankly, the way demographics are going, it could be that the only Catholics still going to church in 20 years are going to be traditional mass participants. You know, you see how the, the younger people today kind of register themselves as nuns. I don't mean N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns, meaning that they don't identify with uh, any religion. They are going to even... They're going to stop even pretending to identify with the religion of their families. Um, and we're going to see a massive drop-off in the number of priests, too, as the demographics of the priesthood changes. Um, anyway, the Novus Ordo is here, and uh, it must be improved, since it's here, through side-by-side -side celebrations with the older forms. We need that gravitational pull on it. Um, it could be that it'll fade out over time. Maybe it won't. It probably will because of those demographics that I'm talking about. Uh, but anyway, years ago, when I was working in Rome, and uh, I was at Ecclesia Day, I had quite a few opportunities to talk about these things, even with Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. And it was his vision that the side-by-side -side celebration of the two forms would spark, re-spark, shall we say, re-ignite, jumpstart that organic development that, of liturgy, of liturgical worship that was so savagely and purposely interdicted by the concilium. I think it's inevitable uh, in the short term, and we are seeing that play out. In the long term, what happens, I'm not quite sure. I think at a certain point that as the, as the Novus Ordo is gravitationally pulled back towards tradition, people are going to ask themselves the same questions that I asked. Hey, if, if this is getting better and better because we're making it more and more like the traditional form, then why not just use the traditional form? But people have to come to that conclusion on their own. It can't be shoved down their throats. That we need catechesis uh, to help them in that, in that process. So I think in, it's inevitable in the short term. And we are seeing it uh, played out in many places. When priests learn the older form, it changes the way they say the Novus Ordo, and it changes the choices that they make for liturgy in their parishes. So there's already an organic influence taking place here and there. But we need a time of stability of the two rites so that we have time to learn our tradition well and settle into it, and settle into the older rites again to get to know them, to let them get into us. You know, every once in a while I'll see an essay by someone 
you know, it's only been, what, 12 years since Samorum Pontificum has been <clears throat> implemented, and they're already saying, well, we ought to tweak the, the old mass with this, and we ought to do this, and we ought to do this to make it more like the Novus Ordo. No, we need to have a time of long stability so that it, we, can, we can settle into it again and really get to know it again. You know, this, here's something that maybe some cradle Catholics don't quite get. They might get it intellectually, but they might not get it effectively. Uh, you need, as a, as a convert, I understand that you need time to settle in and really become Catholic down to your marrow, especially when you come from a more distant tradition. Of course, you know, some people take you know, to it like ducks to water, just as if they've, you know, never been anything else. But even there, it still takes quite a while to just settle in and get really comfortable so that it's all your, that you really understand that the church's patrimony is all your own. It really belongs to you. That it's seeped down into your marrow and you are one with it where you begin to use an old phrase, you know, from Heinlein, you begin to grok it. It takes time. So people who have only known the, the Novus Ordo, or maybe who are cradle Catholics and, you know, have a little different perspective on this or whatever, we need patience. We need a time of stability with the older forms so that it can seep in and we can get comfortable with them again, and then we can start replacing the squishy with the strong. Now think of it in terms of what we eat. Uh, if we eat certain things, then over time, those things will have a lasting effect on our bones and on our blood and so forth. Now here's an analogy. Now some people uh, don't like this analogy. Over the years I've used it on the blog, but hey, you know, they can come up with their own analogies. Um, this whole issue about growing up and settling into something. And, and uh, to be a grown-up Catholic, I think we need a Mass for grown-ups. Uh, our Holy Mass, our participation in the sacred liturgy, which is supposed to be a transformative experience. You'll think of Moses going into the tent of meeting and being transformed in the presence of God so much that his face shone so brightly that he had to wear a veil. You know, this is, in a way, Mass is even greater than that. Mass should be real sustenance, transforming sustenance for us. It should give us, using that, that, that food and that eating analogy, it should give us thick red steak and Cabernet, not pureed carrots and milk for baby teeth. We need uh, meat to be grown-ups, not goop. You know, you vegans out there, you people who eat a lot of, you know, kale smoothies might be writhing a bit. But, you know, work with me here. Um, I want you to grow into something more than perhaps you have hitherto desired to be. And that means real liturgical sustenance. Now, goop is fine for babies. As a matter of fact, it's exactly the right thing for babies. Babies need goop. But when you grow up, you need something more. Now, an adult can survive on the same goop that babies eat, but they're not going to thrive while they survive. And I want you to thrive through Holy Mass, not just survive on it. So, now in the lightning fast revisions and artificial creation of the 
Novus Ordo, and especially for the, the new orations, the prayers for the Novus Ordo, we lost a lot of sustenance. We lost a lot of what could be characterized as negative concepts, which we also need along with the positive. We lost a lot of concepts out of our liturgical prayer. Things like sin, guilt, penance, propitiation, that sort of thing. But those are vital nutrients for Catholics. It can't just all be fluffy bunnies and we're going to heaven. Grown-up Catholics need to understand that we are sinners and that one day we are going to die and meet our Maker, who is our Savior and our Judge. Now, when we deal with very young children, we don't constantly drum on about the four last things. They shouldn't be ignorant of them. We have to teach them those things, but we may might not stress them either. I mean, let children be children. But we must not infantilize adults by denying them the sustenance of the truth. Infantilize them or stunt their growth by a bad or an inadequate diet. You know, goo goo gaga isn't enough for adults. And to be preaching goo goo gaga to them is precisely the opposite of charity, which seeks always to serve the good of another, even at the cost of self-sacrifice, pain for yourself. Now, believe me, I know. Now, alas, the, the Novus Ordo has a lot of goo goo gaga built into it because the experts who cobbled it together stripped out a lot of the essential nutrients from the rites and the prayers. Now, some of these deficiencies can be partly made up for by a good ars celebrandi by the priest and good preaching. Just as in the traditional Latin Mass, some of the optimistic eschatology, which is stressed in the Novus Ordo, can be brought in. But it's far easier to do that with the latter than to evolve the former. So, to try to sum this up, Mass has to be succulent, not insipid. We need all of our tradition, not just something that's kind of, you know, dumbed down. We need it all. So, with the help of uh, good preaching, uh, good devotional reading, uh, silent contemplation, and yes, I do mean sitting down and thinking for a while without looking at a screen or even listening to a podcast, you know, sitting down and, and really trying to crack open the bones of our prayers and our rites and open them with adult teeth and chew on their marrow and gnaw on their flesh and really, really settle in and chew it well and benefit from it. We, with that, we can do an awful lot uh, to revitalize our Catholic identity. We, let's get those bones cracked open and get to that wonderful marrow inside. And so we need, what do we need? We need a massive effort of liturgical catechesis in parishes. Priests have to start explaining and teaching and opening up the riches of the rites themselves and not just stick to the typical, you know, homily sandwich of readings. You know, I know that, I know the documents say that the homilies, homilies really should focus on the readings of the mass, but really, all the time why you know we need we need catechesis about our liturgical rites friends
because we are our rights. You know, if we don't know who we are, we can't be effective as Catholics. And in order to know who we are, we need our tradition and we need to participate in our rights because they form us, they shape us. We are our rights. All right, with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. This is Father John Zulsdorf. Please pray for me, as I will for you.